I'm Adam. And I'm Haley. And welcome back to another episode of Fly on the Wall's first ever summer season. Today, we're excited to welcome Sam Cornelli to the podcast. Sam has extensive experience working on the Obama campaigns for president and within the Obama administration. After leaving the administration, he served as the campaign manager for Tom Perez's successful run for DNC chair. And currently, he serves as the deputy CEO of the DNC. Before we get started, make sure you follow us on social media. We're at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can email us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com with any questions or comments. Sam, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, here at Fly on the Wall, we like to peel back the curtain on what people on the front lines of politics are doing. And so in that spirit, as Deputy CEO of the DNC, can you walk us through what a day in your shoes looks like? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you guys so much for having me. I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, not only the program you're in, uh, but it's uh, it's Shepard and Mo Lathy, who's a dear friend of mine. Um, you know, I think uh, it goes without saying you guys are uh, political observers and practitioners yourself, but no day is uh, necessarily as you planned it. Um, I think, you know, there there's sort of a structure to every day, a flow. It's driven in no small measure by uh, the media cycles, right? And I think early on um, in my career, there was one or two media cycles per day. And one of the big evolutions over time has been both because of social media and you know uh, additional 24-hour news outlets that have come online, uh, there is a, a far less uh, predictable structure to how uh, news cycles play out throughout the day. So with that very large caveat, um, you know we start every day. Uh, the clips go around. You know you're on Twitter, seeing what the news of the day is. Uh, we have a tweeter in chief who frequently has tried to set the day's news cycle either intentionally or occasionally, frequently, unintentionally with uh, his ridiculous, divisive, distracting tweets. Um, So between sort of what news is reporting on and uh, what the White House has done that day or global events, that usually sets the framework for the first part of the day. We always meet with our our senior team, uh, which is about 15 to 20 of our department heads, sort of the senior most staff of the Democratic National Committee. Uh, and from there, we're off and running. It's a series of meetings throughout the day, everything from internal management meetings. So how are we managing and tracking against our goals, both to November and what we need to build or uh, create or recruit in order to be successful in November. But, uh, you know, we're also trying to leave the party stronger than we found it. And so we frequently are also talking about, uh, you know, what, what do we want February of 2021 to look like? What do we want November of 2022 to look like? And so how are we managing towards uh, the immediate time horizon and also uh, for farther out. Um, you know, it's things like this, talking to folks, whether it's podcasts or, or interviews. We have a, a pretty loyal, growing, um, fervent supporter base that we uh, have spent three years really actively cultivating everybody from folks like my mom who give, uh, you know, their $10 a month but want to hear what it's going to, to, uh, you know, high net worth donors who have really stepped up and said uh, the con- this country isn't what they want to leave to their kids and grandkids. And so, uh, it's it's everything from internal management stuff to externally facing, and, and to be honest, that's uh, that's the fun of it, right? That's what gets me out of bed in the morning. Is is there's a lot of action. It's really unpredictable, and at the end of the day, it's about uh, solving problems, not just within our organization, but ultimately solving problems for the American people. That's why we do it. We are in one of the most unpredictable uh, health situations I think our country has ever faced. How has your daily role really changed because of um, the current COVID nineteen situation? 
Well, I think, you know, it's an experience that's not unique to working in politics or my role within the, the political world. I think, you know, every American, every global citizen is experiencing an upheaval in their personal, professional, financial, emotional lives that no one could have predicted. Um, and so, you know, I start out from a place of whether you're working in politics or not, whether you care about it or not, I think we all need to bring a healthy dose of humility and empathy to, to what we and others are going through. Um, you know, at basically every aspect of the work at every level, uh, we've had to totally rethink how we're going to get our job done. And the mission doesn't change, but the tactics uh, that we employ day in and day out to achieve uh, our desired goal of defeating Donald Trump and his Republican enablers uh, remains. And so, you know, take uh, the convention, right? We felt really strongly, again, humility and empathy that we needed to demonstrate that we were ready to lead as a party, not just uh, at the presidential level, but up and down the ballot. And so, you know, one of the things I'm most proud of is we have been ahead of the game at every step on uh, the convention and making sure that we were taking public health uh, advice, uh, not just into account, but that it was driving every decision uh, that we made. Um, you know, our own staff is all working remotely now. Our building's closed, uh, except for some of our security team who are following established protocols recommended by the CDC. Uh, so, you know, how are we uh, empowering and supporting them to continue doing their unbelievably important work that uh, are, you know, requires long days and, and, and hard nights. And, um, you know, that, I come at this from a, uh, this, is, this is a moment, it's a test. And if we rise to it, if we meet it, I fundamentally believe that the American people are desperately seeking that type of leadership. And so we've got work to do. There's a lot of campaign left, but I'm really proud both within our organization and, um, and the outward uh, projection of, of what we see as uh, the leadership this country needs is something that, uh, that is going to resonate with the American people. Yeah, and you've been in this role now a couple of years. Um, and you mentioned before sort of building towards this crescendo in November. And I'm curious, in either the day-to-day -day role of your job or just how certain issues have been presented to you, has there been a difference in the off-year versus on-year election year dichotomy for you? You know, that's a, that's a really fantastic question, Adam. Um, you know, when we, I managed Tom Perez's campaign to lead the party, and I don't think anybody thought that, especially any Democrat, thought that coming out of November, Hillary of 2016, that Hillary wouldn't have been elected president. We def definitely, Tom and I and a bunch of our team that came with us didn't expect to be in party politics or, or running the Democratic Party. Um, but, you know, I think, again, I come back to this moment calling all of us to ask ourselves, are we doing enough? And is this what we're comfortable with as a, as a country? Um, you know, I think that... Um, at the end of the day, while none of us saw us here, this is the place that, that we're meant to be. And so uh, early on, we established uh, sort of a new roadmap for what we wanted this new party to be. Tom talked about it as a turnaround job. Um, you know, I think we just needed a dramatic overhaul and, and redefining what we were as a DNC. And the reason I say that is because early on, you know, it's no fault of anyone's who came before us, but when you have the White House, the, the National Committee generally becomes the, the political arm of the party that controls the White House. And you sort of lose a sense of self uh, when you don't have a mission defined uh, by yourselves uh, to hold yourselves accountable. And so when we came in, we established really two things. First is we wanted to be an all year, every year party. All year, every year party, meaning that we were building, organizing, raising money, competing at the highest level we could all year, every year, not just building towards the next presidential 
uh, cycle. That was one and two, that we were gonna get back to basics and that we were gonna focus on the nuts and bolts, not the bells and whistles, but the nuts and bolts. So what does that mean? If you're running for school board or you're running to uh, sit at the desk in the Oval Office, there's the same sort of core fundamental nuts and bolts, the infrastructure of what a good campaign needs. You need good data, you need tools, you need to be able to communicate to voters and volunteers as efficiently and effectively as possible. Um, you need good models so you know who to turn out and who you're wasting your time on or might be a, a supporter of your opponents, et cetera. And so that's what we focused on. How are we investing in battleground states and all other 50 states too? And I'll get to that in a second, but organizers on the ground, voter protection teams, new tools, technology, data, uh, in a way that uh, could turn out enough supporters to be competitive and successful in non-presidential uh, years as well. And, and the, the results speak for themselves. We're three for three. We won basically everything in 2017. The New Jersey governor's race was flipped. The Virginia governor's race uh, we held. We flipped um, the House of Delegates in Virginia. We then won the special uh, Senate election in Alabama that nobody saw coming, but we had been invested in for almost eight months. Uh, in 2018, we flipped the House, won seven, flipped seven uh, governorships with our partners at the DGA and DCCC, flipped a bunch of, bunch of state legislatures, which really, really matter, especially now with Donald Trump in the White House. And in 2019, uh, we you know, not only flipped the Kentucky uh, governor's mansion from red to blue, we held a really, really competitive um, gubernatorial seat down in Louisiana with their friends at the Louisiana Democratic Party. So uh, I feel really, really good about what we've built. The beauty of it is that it's flexible. It's, uh, it applies to every race a Democrat uh, is running in or trying uh, to, to support another Democrat in. Uh, and I, I am fully confident that we will be in a dogfight in November, but one that we are prepared to win. Yeah, so in that spirit of all year, every year, party building, um, recent protests and the Black Lives Matter movement have focused a lot of people's attention on down-ballot elections, whereas before they might have been only focused on big national elections. And I'm curious, how are you harnessing that energy? That's a great question. I would actually, I, I, would, I would make a friendly amendment uh, to that. I think that, um, I think that Black Lives Matter has brought a lot of attention to simple, pure, systemic racism and injustice, both within the criminal justice system, within our law enforcement uh, community, and within society as a whole, uh, that, that movements besides maybe those in the 60s and our civil rights leaders pioneered haven't been able to do. Uh, it's been unbelievably successful. It should never have been necessary. Um, but I want to separate that from politics because it, it should be bigger than politics. It shouldn't just be Democrats or people focused on winning back state legislatures who should care that uh, you know, a black man in Minneapolis shouldn't uh, be suffocated to death by a police officer for nine minutes. Uh, that should not be political. That should be uh, about who we are as human beings uh, in building a society, an economy, a, a criminal justice system, a legal system, uh, an education system, a finance system um, that says that uh, in fact, black lives do matter, and that until they do matter, uh, we can't say that all lives matter, because it's simply not true. So with that having been said, you know, I think one of the silver linings of 2016 was this uh, increased recognition by the Democratic Party that down-ballot races mattered. And not only that they mattered, but that they could be fun and exciting, right? I, I, I think back to uh, campaigning uh, in 2017 with my friend Terry McAuliffe down in Virginia. 
and the energy he brought to, you know, races like Hala Ayala's and uh, Danica Rome's and all of these names that we as, as democratic operatives now know. And if you would have told somebody in 2016 that they'd know the name of, you know, five of the 15 House of Delegate Democrats who flipped seats from red to blue just a year later, they would have told you you were crazy. And so that is something that is, is, is an evolution uh, in the Democratic Party that makes us stronger, pure and simple. Uh, it is something that the Republicans have been uh, awake to for longer than we have, frankly. And you look at folks like the Koch brothers who went in and bought, pure and simple again, they bought seats on school boards and totally re uh, reformed local education systems in states around the country. They bought state legislative seats, right? There's a reason that in coming out of 2016, uh, we were just a handful of state legislatures away from Re Republicans being able to call for a constitutional convention. That's how dire it was when you look at state legislatures. And now we've dramatically uh, turned the tide. This year alone, if we win, I believe, about 30 to 32 seats across eight state legislatures, if we flip those seats, uh, we win all eight. And that's in addition to the you know, uh, uh, nearly double digits that we won uh, in 2018. And so um, you know, I, I want to divorce those two issues because one is above politics. Uh, politics is a vehicle to fix it, no doubt about it. We need to turn out uh, votes. We need to win seats, and we can make these structural reforms to systemic injustice and racism in this country that uh, are so desperately needed. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, the, the down ballot, uh, you know, focus that we've brought to this party uh, is purely political, right? It's about a political awakening that it's not just the Oval Office uh, that matters. Absolutely. And, and going off of that a little bit, does the DNC ever work with organizations at um, state and local level? Do you partner with them very explicitly? And, and how does that shape out? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think one of the things I'm most proud of uh, in, in this sort of culture shift that we've tried to bring to the Democratic National Committee is an emphasis not just as I talked about uh, just now on, on uh, state and local elections and being an all year every year party, but doing so uh, not uh, instead of local organizations or other committees, but uh, arm in arm with. Um, and if you talk to people in the progressive movement about you know, how it's been for decades, you didn't have the DNC leading trainings alongside every other sister committee like the DCCC and the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee that focuses on state legislatures and the Attorney General's Association um, of, of the Democratic Party. Uh, or you know, even indivisible or uh, color of change, inclusive, these uh, unbelievably impactful either legacy that have been around for a long time or emerging out of the, the depths of 2016. You just didn't see that sort of united front and you do now. And that is a testament not just to the DNC. We don't get even the lion's share of the credit. I think we as a community have come together to say, this is a moment that calls for us to be as efficient and effective as possible. And, you know, whether it's uh, working with local organizations like uh, Block, Black Leaders Organizing Communities, to, um, you know, our folks at the DLCC, who I've mentioned a couple times now, but are doing just unbelievably impactful work on shifting the direction that this country's taken. Um, you know, I'm proud of both of those equally. And I think uh, as a community, if we can continue building in that way, where it's hand in glove, not us or them doing this work, uh, we are ultimately stronger as a party and we've got the numbers to win. Yeah, and you mentioned having united front with all these organizations, but there is a tension between some of what 
more moderates in the party and progressives in the party support, as we saw in the presidential primary on issues like health care. So I'm curious, as someone who's trying to build a big tent party with United Front against a common opponent, what sorts of conversations are you having at the highest level of the DNC about hot-button issues like health care? It's going to come as as no surprise to any of your listeners that there are differences within the Democratic Party. Um, We are ultimately a very inclusive party. Much like our country, we have different communities, different constituencies. We have uh, men, women, gender non-binary. We have people from the Pacific Northwest and the Deep South. Uh, But that is something ultimately, if we give people the tools to control their own destiny, to organize, if we give them trainings and and data and organizers on the ground to help them uh, build their own network, build their own organization within their communities, we can win everywhere. And when you look at the, the, how the presidential primary played out, it was frequently difficult for people to find differences between many of the candidates. Um, it is okay. It is absolutely okay. And in fact, again, it makes us stronger to have differences within our party. Uh, and at the end of the day, there is a common ground that we find that if you take a look at the uh, Democratic Party platform, which just passed uh, a couple days ago, it is the most progressive party platform uh, our party has ever had. And at the same time, it's quite pragmatic. Uh, so it, you know, democracy, both within our Democratic Party and as a country, is a series of trade-offs. And you know, I think at the end of the day, uh, the way I view uh, my role in the Democratic Party as a proud progressive who grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, a very liberal town, uh, is to push as far as humanly possible in making our organization better and more fair and more inclusive in making our work and our tools and our technology sounder uh, and easier to use and moving our party in a more progressive, more uh, impactful, powerful, positive direction, um, pushing as far as we can, draw a line in the sand and the next morning we wake up and we keep pushing again. Uh, and there's a, there's a, a great story, an anecdote that uh, a mentor of mine used to tell me about her work with Ted Kennedy, where the day he passed a minimum wage increase in the Senate, he came back to the office and they were prepared to celebrate. It had been many years uh, since they had increased the minimum wage and they were there uh, ready to celebrate. And he said, tomorrow we start back in on the next bill. So that I think is the ethos behind what we all have to bring, uh, whether you're from the most progressive wing of the party or the very center is working together, finding common ground and pushing as hard as humanly possible to make a difference in people's lives. How do you approach that kind of mentality when a candidate, say, at the top of the ticket would support repairing the Affordable Care Act while someone on the down ballot might um, very strongly campaign on and support Medicare for all? At the end of the day, if I'm uh, you know, a, a single parent who's worried about how they're going to put food on the table and pay for my kids' prescription bills, I'm not worried about whether it's building on Obamacare or Medicare for all. What I'm worried about is can I put food on the table and can I pay my prescription drug bills to make sure that my kids are healthy and safe. And so, uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, this is about what we deliver for the American people and differences are okay. None of us are the same person. In fact, I think it's kind of creepy when you take a look at the Republican Party and how they're all uh, in lockstep with President Trump. And if they're not, by the way, They've been uh, cast aside, you know, the center, the center right of the Republican Party is non-existent. Uh, The Republican Party now is a far right, in many ways, alt-right, neo-Nazi driven regime that is out of step with probably more than 60% of the American people. 
And so listen, I would, I would happily take our differences over policy nuances when we share a common goal of universal healthcare, when we believe healthcare is a fundamental right for all, not a privilege for the wealthy and well-connected, I would happily take those divisions over uh, our opponents uh, in their views any day of the week. Uh, and so I think, listen, at the end of the day, this is about delivering for the American people. And if we do that, no matter how we come at it or the differences we have and how we see uh, the path to get there, uh, we're going to be a party in power for a long time. Yeah. So moving into the theme of this season, which is the current 2020 election season, um, you spent a good portion of your career both working in the Obama administration and you served as uh, Pennsylvania political director in 2012 for Obama's campaign. Based on your various experiences um, at both levels, what's been most surprising to you about this cycle? That's a great question. I think, uh, you know, obviously there's been a lot of things that uh, have surprised me. Uh, some that surprised me because they were in someone else's control and others like the pandemic that uh, surprised me uh, all the more and were not within anyone's control. Uh, I think a lot of people were caught off guard by how quickly the primary came to an end. Um, I think, you know, one of the things I'm most proud of, however, and one of the things I hope uh, your Democratic listeners at least appreciate is the extent to which our team was prepared for any scenario. Uh, we've had organizers on the ground for more than a year in 14 battleground states. Uh, we launched a program uh, called Organizing Corps last year, which trained more than a thousand uh, young people in organizing, put them to work, registering voters starting last summer. Uh, they were uh, more than three quarters diverse, uh, 90%, some 90% were local to the communities they were organizing in, an unbelievably sound organizing program. And that was one of probably a dozen things uh, I could reference. And so, you know, I think how the primary played out and how it ended caught a lot of people uh, off guard, uh, surprised a lot of people. I think uh, COVID in no small measure uh, uh, played a, a fundamental role in that. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, I feel really good both in battlegrounds and in some of the non-battleground big opportunities, places like, uh, you know, Montana, where we have a, have a Senate seat and a, a governor's uh, seat to protect, uh, where we're really going to surprise some people. And I think that ultimately the breadth of where we are, are strong and where we're going to win is what's really going to uh, leave people uh, impressed with what we've done, I think. Can you talk a little bit more about how the DNC approached the primary season and are you holding your breath and waiting for someone to be chosen by the American people? What does that look like? Yeah, so, you know, there was, I was not at the DNC until after the 2016 campaign ended. I was still working in the Obama administration and then we were off and uh, running uh, Tom's campaign to, to lead the party in, in the aftermath of that loss. Um, so I don't want to opine on whether it was real or just the perception, but I don't think anyone can argue with the fact that there was a fundamental belief amongst uh, too many, too many for us to be comfortable with it in the Democratic Party, uh, that the 2016 process was flawed. I think we can all probably agree on that, whether fair and real or just perception, it doesn't matter. Uh, that's what we were uh, in part, again, as a turnaround job. That's what we had to uh, dig ourselves out of. So. Uh, Tom Perez, to his credit, very early on, uh, he's a man of principle and character and, and a sound moral compass, and he made it very, very clear to all of us that we were doing things differently, that culture was going to matter, 
that he was going to emphasize it at every turn. And, and that was uh, no different for the presidential primary process. So, you know, there's a couple different tracks that I think we really took an innovative approach to. First was uh, the debate process. This was a point of contention in 2016 in a big way. They added some debates late. They felt like they were scheduled at a time that was uh, disadvantageous to some of the candidates. Uh, and so we said early on, before uh, there was a real field established, at the end of 2018, we put out a framework. We said there are going to be 12 debates. There's going to be uh, one in June, one in July, one in September, one in October. You know, we laid it all out there. Uh, we said that we were going to have a diverse uh, 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 field of moderators, right? We can't control who the networks pick, but we can say there will be a woman on stage and there will be a person of color on stage, which we did. And then, uh, you know, the threshold, how do you get on the debate stage? There was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of anxiety around these, but at the end of the day, uh, we had laid out in that early framework what the thresholds were going to be. Not exactly the number, but that they would be the equivalent of viability. I think ultimately that uh, was handled really, really well. And, 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 you know, we had a diverse, strong field uh, that got to make their case to the American people, but we also delivered uh, a nominee uh, in, in uh, a strong position. Uh, so that's one. Uh, two, you know, I think that there was a, a lot of concern about, in 2016, people within the DNC to publicly voicing uh, their preferences. Uh, Tom Perez uh, insisted that every member of his staff sign a neutrality pledge. We were not allowed to donate post positive or negative things about any of the candidates. Um, you know, that was difficult when I had a lot of great friends out there uh, who were asking for my support or guidance. Um, you know, and I'm sure a lot of my colleagues had the same experience, but it's, it's really important again, whether fair, uh, whether real or just perception, uh, we had to, uh, we had to address that. Um, and then third, you know, we also knew that uh, we were trying to hand off the largest, uh, biggest organizing entity that any nominee would inherit. Uh, and that required us thinking a lot differently about how we raise money. Uh, and I think one of the things you saw as we launched, you know, something called the Democratic Unity Fund, engage Barack Obama to help us raise money throughout the primary to fund all of these organizers and voter protection directors and new data investments that were going to benefit uh, the nominee before there was uh, a nominee. Uh, we asked as part of uh, the primary process in order to access the Democratic Party's data for their own campaigns. We asked every uh, primary candidate to uh, send, I think it was an email a month or something, an email a quarter or something like that. But we wanted everybody not just to understand that we were being fair and transparent, but that they too had to be invested in our success. And I think that more than anything is the model moving forward. So it's January of 2020. Um, the primary is still raging, but you know that the party is going to have to come together um, whenever the American people, the Democratic Party decides on a nominee. And I'm assuming you're planning on hiring hundreds, if not thousands of organizers to knock doors throughout the fall. And then suddenly it's March, boom, a pandemic hits. You can't knock doors feasibly um, because you're putting people at risk. So I guess, how has this pandemic altered the way in which you're allocating resources for the fall into the election? Yeah, it's, that's, a, that's a great question. And I think um, there is there's an irony to the fact that our focus on infrastructure, you know, you think infrastructure, you think rigidity and you can't really move it. Um, but at least in the political sense, our focus on infrastructure, the nuts and bolts, the foundation of a good campaign, whether it's national or hyper local, 
are focusing on that infrastructure is what made us so nimble. What I mean by that is, you know, we already had hundreds of organizers around the country. We had this stable of more than a thousand diverse, talented, uh, heavily trained organizers that were going to be coming out, that were going to be matriculating out of college, having participated in the Organizing Corps program uh, in May. So we had all these resources that we had invested over time in their success and thus in ours. And the question then was, how do we deploy them? Where do we point them? Right? So I'll give you a great example. Our digital organizing team, uh, which had been sort of an appendage of our organizing program, became the, the focal point. Right? Instead of traditional uh, direct voter contact, you know, at doors or on the phones, we moved to phones and online and trained thousands of super volunteers within the first six weeks of the pandemic. So while people were at home, we were training them how, you know, what a Facebook group was, how to weaponize their friendships and network in a positive way, right? how to turn people loose and empower them and thus uh, build these organizational structures that could ultimately turn out voters uh, come November. And so, you know, when you have really sound data that's been invested in for three years, we can go find anybody we need to, not just to be a volunteer, but ultimately to be a voter. Uh, when you've invested in digital acquisitions, we have the largest email list the Democratic Party has ever had. Uh, you're able to raise the resources you need when you can no longer do in-person events. Um, we have invested in our own people. One of the things that Tom and I said early on was we want to be a destination workplace. Uh, and so we've got crazy, creative, talented people who were able within a couple of days to rethink entirely how this business is done. I'll give you an example, our major donor fundraising team. Uh, traditionally, uh, major donor fundraising is done in person at events uh, or one-on-one -on -one meetings. When you can't do either, what are you gonna do to raise money? Well, they went out and they found someone equally as innovative who had built an entire virtual fundraising program for uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg's campaign. We brought him on board and within a week we had scaled a virtual fundraising program. And now we've entirely shifted the paradigm of how we raise money. And that was before the end of the primary. Uh, so I think at the end of the day, you know, what, what the legacy I want to leave and Tom wants to leave and all of our colleagues want to leave at the DNC is that uh, we are not just a presidential campaign committee. We don't matter every fourth year. We matter all four years. Uh, and because of our attention to detail and because of our consistent, not just raising of, of significant resources all year, every year, but also pumping it back into the grassroots and the tools and technology and data that they need to do their own work and be successful. We were ready for anything that comes and we still are. Uh, and so I'm, I'm really excited to see what this team does. Uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna make some waves. And I say that knowing full well the expectations that have already been set. So you're talking about things to come and as we sit and talk today at the end of July, candidate Biden has not yet decided who his vice president will be. That's going to come that, that news. So where do you see that going? He's already announced that he's going to choose a woman. Uh, how is this going to affect the race? Well, first it's going to be historic, uh, you know, uh, uh, female vice president. Uh, I am, I am, uh, I am not blind or naive to the work ahead of us, but I am really confident in what we've built and uh, we are going to be in a fight for our, uh, lives and our future in this country in November, but we are equipped, well equipped uh, to win. And so I think, you know, just the, the historical nature of his choice uh, shouldn't be lost on, on any of us. Um, you know, second, uh, women have led the resistance. They time and again, both in the last couple of years and in the last couple of centuries have put this country, put this world on their backs and carried us to a better place. Uh, and so there's a particular 
uh, it's particularly poignant and emotional, I think, not just for women, but especially for women, um, but also for, for myself to see uh, the culmination of not just the last three years, but the last couple centuries and, and see a woman on the ticket. Um, so, so the historical nature of it's not lost on me. Uh, it's a reflection of where we are as a party. We've grown immensely. Uh, women uh, make up the majority of our party and they, they're the reason we won back the house and won a bunch of these governorships because uh, many have moved, have moved our way. Um, so I'm really excited. The, you know, I, I, I won't uh, break any news uh, on this podcast, nor am I that in the know. Uh, but Haley, you know, I hope you have a bag packed. I know you've gone through the full vetting process. Uh, you will be a very young, you know, sort of off, off the, off the wall, fly on the wall, off the wall uh, pick. But uh, I'm really excited about your political future. Do I have to accept now. <laughs> Get your speech ready. Well, Sam, we don't want to take too much of your time, but we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with the podcast to come on and give us some insight on what's going on behind the scenes um, in the Democratic Party. Yeah, no, I, I really had a great time. I appreciate you guys uh, not only letting me come on, um, but you know, I just want to take a point of personal privilege and uh, encourage you and your listeners, especially those uh, who are in this program at Georgetown, but no matter where you are, uh, to uh, you know, take advantage of opportunities like this. I hope you appreciate how unbelievably fortunate uh, you are to uh, not just uh, go to a school with a program like that, but to live in a world, live in a country where that is that is an option and an opportunity that you can take. So uh, to whatever extent I can help you or any of your listeners uh, figure out what your path should be, um, let me know. But uh, I encourage you all to uh, pay it forward and, and uh, take advantage of everything you've been given. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us on this week's episode of Flying the Wall. But before you go, make sure you follow us on social media. We're at Find the Wall Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Or you can email us at Find the Wall Podcast at with any questions or comments. See you next week.